Welcome to UUCSW Reflections, a podcast by the Unitarian Universalist Congregational Society of Westboro, Massachusetts. We're glad you're here. Welcome to UUCSW Reflections. I'm your host, Amanda Hall, here with Reverend Laurel Gray. This is the monthly episode of this podcast where we reflect on recent sermon themes and answer questions from the congregation. If you'd like to submit a question, please email it to podcasts at uucsw.org. And be sure to say which sermon your question's about, if applicable. Don't worry, we won't share the names or identifying information about question askers on this podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the sermons Weathering the Storm, Whose History, The Free Pulpit, and our commitment to hope, all of which can be found in this podcast feed. Hey, Laurel. Hey, we're back at it. We are. How are you doing? Good. It's like springtime somehow. It is. <laughs> I'm like not sure how, which means we've it's been spring. in quarantine for a year. Uh-huh. A year plus. Ooh. But during that year, you were ordained. Yeah, so that, also, that happened our, in February. Yes. I know. Yes. This is our first Q&A since you were ordained. I know. So it only took exciting. two years to pull that off, which is wild. Well, you know. Luckily, all of that time made for a very moving and beautiful ceremony. It so was good. It was good. Worth it. Yes. And that was something that you talked about just jumping right into the very first sermon, Weathering the Storm, is the importance of celebration. Oh, yeah. This time. Right. And I wrote that sermon after my ordination. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> I got ordained on a Saturday afternoon, and I was like, "There's, there's no get." An ordination is such a big event, like getting married, that you sort of like mm-hmm. can't think about anything else until it's over. Oh, once yeah. you get too close, and so there came a point on Thursday and Friday when I was like, "This is futile. No sermon is going to be written. It's going <laughs> to have to happen on Saturday night <laughs> after my ordination." Um, and so it did, and that was the right choice. So, yeah, it was perfect. I forgot those things were so close together because it's all kind of a blur. So speaking of celebration, um, I was hoping our exercise where we did some dreaming together went really great last time. And oh, so yeah. I was hoping we could kick off with an exercise oh. this time and just celebrate something together. Cool. Uh, is there anything big or small that has happened recently that you feel like doing a a quick celebration about? Oh, interesting. (laughs) Um, Oh my gosh. What a good question. I mean, I feel, so the last six weeks have been like very full in church life. And so I, I feel a certain degree of celebration about like, we're like we're still trucking along and we're at the sort of turning point in the congregation where instead of just like managing all of the complexity of covid we're starting to think about like next year when hopefully we'll be able to have some kind of in-person hybrid situation how will we do that um Mm -hmm. and thinking about um like what what systems we need to put in place to make that to be able to smoothly make that transition once it's like safe sort of medically um yeah and so that feels like 
we've made some serious traction um, and our like skill level at Pandemic Church, thinking about a year ago when it was like, how do we even Zoom, right? right? Like this is entirely new and different. Whereas at this point, like the whole group of people who are involved in leading services and making everything happen are just like so practiced at it. Um, yeah. So that feels like a good celebratory, like we've learned a lot and our tech capacity has like skyrocketed. Um, yeah. And like the sort of there, there have been fruits of the labor of the last year. So that feels like a good celebration. Um, and the flowers That's are awesome. blooming, you know. Yay. Okay. I'm applauding that in a microphone-friendly way, gently. Nice. Um, um, and I have you? a I have a follow-up on that. Yeah. But um, I will say I want to celebrate that I've had my first dose of a vaccine, yes. which was very exciting. Amazing. So I'm on the journey to being fully vaccinated, yeah. and I wish I was already, but yeah. <laughs> we're celebrating. And as of... So. I think today, right now, vaccines are open to everybody or something yes. like that. Yeah. Which is huge and amazing. Everybody 16 plus. 16 plus. I believe. Right. So yeah. that is like, that is worth quite a celebration. Yeah. After the year that's that, awesome. Yeah. We've all been through. That's amazing. So, so we're doing it. Go medicine. <laughs> yes. We love science. Um, <laughs> and yeah. So following up on... What what you said about um, thinking about plans for the fall yep. or for when we are eventually back in person, um, that sort of has me thinking about the radical hospitality yes. that you talked about in the Who's History yeah. um, sermon and how we can leverage and incorporate what we've learned about being yeah. able to make these accessible to people who can't be physically in person. Right. Um, how those lessons can help us assume that there are people already among us who can benefit from that kind of accessibility. Yeah. And keep that, uh, you know, availability open. Well, so I think that's really important um, because there is, there's been this, like, so normally your sort of private medical information is private and like, should it should be possible to keep it fairly private. Um, and the unfortunate reality of COVID is that it has, if we don't, if we don't operate within radical hospitality of sort of assuming that there are already people who are immunocompromised that we wouldn't know and assuming that people have... Um, like individuals and their families who are at high risk or like if you don't operate within that assumption of hospitality that like all of that is already present um, you inadvertently sort of force people to declare private information about themselves that like nobody should be in the position of having to disclose um, mm -hmm. so I, I hope that the last year has has made us a little bit better at that um because like it's just really complicated um and part of the part of the goal with setting up like particularly with worship services setting up a hybrid system where 
you can be in person, but you can also be remote and the experience isn't super different, right? So it's not yeah. just like, oh, we've, we video recorded the service and you can watch it later. Like that's not the same as, because it's not interactive. That's not the same yeah. as like going to church. Um, and so our, the goal in um, figuring out how to, how to make these hybrid, like in-person and high-tech like modality for services possible um, is so that people who do need to opt to stay home or want to don't feel like they're sort of being, I don't know, made less than or like they're yeah. not as much part of the community because we don't want that to be the reality. Um, and a lot of, a lot of places, a lot of, churches of various varieties um, have been doing this sort of in person if you feel comfortable, but then it's also live streamed, which to yeah. me, that doesn't work for me as radical hospitality um, because it still sort of forces this like, do you feel safe about COVID now um, question. And mm -hmm. so the hybrid model that we're looking at, we, we won't even like hit go on that until essentially we can trust that the pandemic is basically over. So then the yeah. reasons that people would be staying home, it like, it's not like you're outing yourself that you're immunocompromised. Um, right. So. But there's, and, I mean, there's a lot of, of people who have access to these services who wouldn't otherwise. Exactly. Um, for right. lots of reasons other than being exactly. compromised or COVID conscious. Exactly. Right. And and it creates this sort of um like we we as an organization also can't put staff people in the position of having to decide. Right. So like we're only going to start the in person thing when it's not a health risk to anybody. And so then yeah. the reasons to want to engage digitally digitally are not like you're not disclosing health information it's like geography or right like you just want to come in your pajamas from your bed like whatever <laughs> right like that's yeah. all good and good and well um but we don't we don't want to cause any put anybody in the position of having to disclose personal medical information about themselves or about anybody that they're in close contact with um yeah right which is because it's a pandemic so yeah, yeah, radical hospitality is like, we assume, right, that there are all kinds of situations at play that would make it not safe for people to come. And we're not going to ask people to specify. Yeah, and I think the concept of radical hospitality, um, as opposed to, I mean, it's related to the concept of um, inclusion. Yeah. But I think it's taking it a step further rather than, you know, a, a hypothetical, like it, it's moving it from, you know, hypothetically some yeah. other person might have this issue right. to assuming right. someone that we talk to and right. who we already view as like a person, right. you know, right. um, it's not in like our, a statistic group. Right. It's right. just like Needless. all of these things are already present in who we all are together. So yeah, we're just going to live as though that's true. Yeah, and I think, so I've seen a fair amount of, like, people on 
disability Twitter uh, talking about how for years the accommodations like remote learning were denied to them for, you know, years. Right. And then once the pandemic hit, suddenly, oh, this this stuff that was impossible is suddenly possible now. Right. Um, And so there's a real fear and anger that those things might get taken away again. Right. But also armed with the new evidence that, hey, this was possible. You did yeah. it. Right. It make, which <laughs> you makes can't it tell me it's impossible. Right. 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 Um, so I think, you know, being conscious in our own spaces of how we can do that and also anticipate yeah. whatever other needs. Maybe yeah. um, like closed captioning, for example, yeah. might be something we could look into. Exactly. Um, you know, other elements of right you know need that people might have that haven't been accommodated so yeah starting meeting next week to talk about it (laughs) Ooh, yeah awesome good good things ahead yeah if people have suggestions they can yeah what should they do if they have suggestions of other kinds of accessibility that's a good question so you can either send me an email um your dad is actually the one in charge of this committee. <laughs> oh, cool. So talk to Bruce Hall, because um, the Halls are our, like, resident, one of our resident high-tech families. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, reach out to reach out to somebody, and we'll get you in the right direction. But Okay, cool. Yeah. And also, people can always email podcasts yep. at uucsw.org. That's just sort of another avenue. But I, Amanda, also see those. So yeah. if you want it to just go to Laurel, then you should mail Laurel directly. Cool. Awesome. So one other thing that came up in... So Weathering the Storm was about our pledge drive also. Yes. Um, and something that you talked about was a kind of giving that is in relationship. Yes. Um, rather than transactional. Um, and that's, that's something I've been thinking a lot about in terms of, um, wealth redistribution and traditional charity and philanthropy. Yeah. Um, I think one thing, so one thing we've talked about a lot in relationships is boundaries and power. Yes. Um, and boundaries and power are very intimately related. Right. Um, making sure that everyone has agency to say what makes them feel comfortable right. and not have that be um, undermined or threatened. And I think bringing that understanding of power dynamics into a giving relationship is yeah. also really important. Yeah. And so I have started to think a little bit critically about um, – philanthropy that redistributes wealth without redistributing power or acknowledging the kind of relationship that is built when you give money. Um, I have two good examples for you because I've also been thinking about this. Yes, please. I would love to hear them. One of the things that I've been hearing about a lot, um, I don't know if it's actually like autism awareness month or week or day or something. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. But I've been seeing a lot of um, sort of commentary on organizations like Autism Speaks, mm-hmm. which um, from the perspective of autistic people does a lot of harm and 
Um, it's an organization that raises huge amounts of money, right? It's that like puzzle um, yep. bumper sticker. Like I saw one in front of the police station in town and sort of like cringed, right? Because Autism Speaks raises huge amounts of money, um, but there are no autistic people in their leadership whatsoever. Um, yep. And they support practices that um, autistic people and advocates say are really harmful. Um, and I don't know like a huge amount of the details of this, but I know that it's this like very um, potent thing. And yeah. that's a really good example of like people think they're giving money to this organization that claims to be doing good to advocate for these people. But if none of those people actually have any kind of power within that organization, then like right. that's just like that's probably just doing a lot of harm and no good. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, again, that comes to um, the kind of allyship that is steamrolling and not yes. um, amplifying. Right. And so, you know, that is a huge problem. Right. Um, another example that I'm I was thinking about was um, so the Gates Foundation yeah. is maybe the biggest philanthropic organization yeah. That I know about. Um, yeah. I can't think maybe of another Google one. <laughs> does, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, but I mean, if you think of like the biggest name in philanthropy, it would be yeah. like the Gateses. Yeah. They have a tremendous amount of agenda setting power when it comes to global health. So oh, what they think is important really matters in Oof. terms of what kinds of initiatives are um, pitched are yeah. conceived of and then obviously are funded and carried out. Yeah. And this is applicable in vaccine distribution right now for oh, um, COVID because the Gates Foundation, um, their official stance is um, pro patent on um, like medication and um, vaccines and everything like that. Um, and that stance can't be questioned by anyone who's trying to get the support of the Gates Foundation, which is pretty much everyone who's trying to get philanthropy money for global health. So that creates a huge power issue in, you know, controlling and setting the agenda in global health by yeah. one, you know, in a totally undemocratic um, way, you know, so That's wild. Can you to, to sort of, um, flesh this out more for people can you sort of describe yeah. what like why the patent thing thing creates an issue yes so because of the patent uh control that um like u.s companies have over yep. the vaccines that severely limits who is allowed to manufacture them um and especially who can manufacture them um and distribute them for what cost and where right um and like all of this development means that long story short um richer countries and right. countries in the global north have access to vaccines much sooner um and profit uh from vaccines is concentrated in u.s companies and um you know distribution Ugh. is much less efficient because of this and yeah. so if you are if the argument for um, you know, for the economy, for 
capitalist economy is it's the most efficient way of allocating resources. This is a really, really clear counterexample of right. it's in everyone's best interest for everyone to be yeah. vaccinated. Yeah. And just like as fast as possible. That, everybody. Right. And that process <laughs> is really severely hindered by uh, patent law. Um, That's fascinating. And you don't have to patent vaccines. So uh, like Jonas Salk invented the polio vaccine and refused to patent it. Yeah. And that means polio doesn't exist in the world anymore. Right. right? I mean, oh or gosh. to the extent that it does, yeah. it can be, you know, more easily. I don't actually know for sure that it's been eradicated. Um, I think so. I think so. Anyways, we don't. Yeah. This is not a science podcast. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, although I'm science not is one of our sources of wisdom. <laughs> Um, no, I don't know for sure. But um, yeah, I mean, and this isn't, you know, global health is not my area of expertise. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, my my mom would probably have a lot more to say about this. Kim Hall, if you want to talk to her about Who's a nursing professor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So she's a doctorate of nurse practitioner at this point. Um, so anyway, that is um, one example of, and people think of the Gates Foundation as, an example of, well, look, some people, some billionaires are really dedicate their whole lives to giving yeah. back to the world and look at all these great things they've done. And so, right. you know, that's an argument for private philanthropy, theoretically. Yeah. But it's still private control of resources and right. power right. that is unregulated. Un- I mean, not totally unregulated, but like... Yeah. Basically. Undemocratic and yeah. keeps the decision-making power in the hands of the powerful. Right. Rather than, you know, redistributing decision-making agency to yeah. people who are experiencing the, the harm. Yeah. So um, I would say, so that's just, that's just something really important to think about um, as, you know, people undertake their own, Right. Um, giving plans or, you know, wealth redistribution. Right. Um, you know, looking at, you know, what does this organization do to the power dynamics yeah. in this space, in this world? Is it led by the people who are directly affected? Is it a grassroots organization? Right. Um, you know, by people, is it people speaking for themselves and building power for their own communities? Or is it people who claim to advocate for another community right. that they're not technically a part of? Right. You know, like making those distinctions is important so there's to look the at. the other the example there. that I was oh, thinking yes. of um, is sort of, we think so far is actually like a positive inversion of this sort of normal power dynamic. Um, and it's something that's new and was started in Boston called the Ujima Project. Yes. Um, do you know about this? I do. So our racial justice committee la- just, I think it was last week, um, was looking at sort of the potential to, as a congregation, try and be investors um, in the Ujima project. And so that's sort of like a thing that's people are trying to figure out in the congregation on the racial justice committee, trying to figure out like what's possible and you know, try and get that going. Because my understanding is that it's um, essentially a, like, independent fund to make loans to um, Black people and Black business owners to support local community projects and sort of local initiatives that are, in fact, um, like, controlled and managed by the people in those communities instead of this sort of 
external system. You, I yes. wonder if you have a better explanation than I have. That's my like vague understanding. Well, that's um, so when, I mean, thinking about, um, you know, sort of wealth redistribution, there's sort of two prongs to it. One is giving. So, you know, redistributing in a way that is like, quote unquote, philanthropic or, yeah. you know, moves the resources totally away without expectation of them coming back. The other is investment that is uh, investing in, you know, what we call the solidarity economy. Yeah. Um, so that is not stocks. That is not the stock market right. bonds. Right. That is not, um, you know, keeping money in banks that are names that you would have heard of. Um, <laughs> right. But rather understanding that wherever your money is, it's, doing something. So right. anywhere that your money is right now, it's having an effect right. in some way. And there are initiatives that are sort of alternatives to the stock market as places to keep your money. Yeah. Like the uh, Ujima project yeah. that um, sort of approach lending and um, investing in a really different way. Yeah. So there's a lot of different things that the, the solidarity economy encompasses. But um, like rotating loan funds, like the one that you mentioned, are really interesting because um, there are, you know, historically certain communities, um, and also this um, continues to be the case in present day, um, communities that have not had access to traditional right. um, financial products and loans. Right. And there's right. also... Think like redlining, um, right? Is yes, like a exactly. really critical so, example. Like you can't get yeah, a mortgage so to buy a yeah. house. And you, and also, even if you have a house, if it's in a historically redlined area, meaning it, you know, used to be designated as like a black community and yeah. therefore risky for for banks to um, invest in mortgages, and you also can't get uh, like home improvement loans there. So oh, even people who are um, trying to, you know, make those homes more um, supportive of, you know, a safe place to live, yeah, you know. That is another kind of loan that people are locked out of, as as well as um, business loans and stuff like right. that. So um, the other problem with traditional financial products is the distribution of risk. So um, and and interest rates, which are right. um, obscure and intentionally hard to understand and yeah. can change over time and everything like that. So um, some solidarity economy investing shifts the risk to the investor rather than the person taking out the loan. So the terms of the loan are, you know, the person who makes the loan doesn't get money back except out of profit. <laughs> so if the business fails, like, yeah, then the risk was on the uh, investor. Um, it's also much uh, you know, it approaches interest rates very differently. Sometimes it's no interest at all. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's, you know, low fixed interest that's very transparent. Um, so, you know, that's that's another way to look at that, too. Um, and same thing with, like, using credit unions, local credit unions instead of banks. Um, has a similar effect, keeps the money more locally in the community. Um, and again... It's also a different relationality in that get in that investing as opposed to, you know, if you're investing in the stock market, that is by design 
um, very like that's characterized by abstraction and distance yeah. from what your money's actually doing. Yeah. Other than just potentially growing. Right. Um, whereas if your investments are in something like the Ajima project, you know what your money's doing right. and you are likely to have a personal relationship right. with people who are controlling that fund. Right. Um, and so that, you know, giving in community in relationship right. has a different effect um, and can build, you know, stronger interpersonal bonds. Yeah. Um, so that was the long answer. That was a but, good, um, like, <laughs> summary yeah. of, like, money matters. <laughs> Yeah. I really, mean, I, so Amanda often, was a math major. So clearly. <laughs> not like, a finance manager, but or not but a finance know. major, but yes. Um, but this is stuff I'm thinking about. Um, yeah. And it's so important and like so obscure to so many people. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole system is intentionally confusing yeah. because it's supposed to be confusing and you're not supposed to question it. Because it's just, like, the thing smart people do, if you're being smart with your money, then it has to grow. Like, that's the only smart thing you can do with your money. Whereas realizing that your money is passively doing work and, like, having an effect on the world every day, no matter where it is. Yeah. And, you know, this, quote, smartest thing to do with that money might not be have it in a place where it's going to just continue to accumulate. You know, it might be having it do something that makes your world, the world that you live in better for you and other well, people I'm reminded around you. Too of a conversation we had in the fall about how gross domestic product is not an indicator of flourishing. So this right. like the idea that the only like valid, um, I don't know, desire with money is to make it grow is similarly like very one dimensional um, yeah. in a way that obscures the idea that anything else has any kind of value, um, like people and communities, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Yeah. So speaking of questioning, yeah. Do you want to jump into the, uh, our commitment to hope sermon? We actually skipped over the free pulpit, but maybe we can come back to that. Um, so I think when it comes to, um, this sermon Mm -hmm. so a little bit of a um summary might not be a bad place to start yep um so i will just say the three main aspects of that sermon were um that our commitment in the liberal tradition which is something of which we are a part yep and this is liberal religion not liberal politics to sort of help people separate this yeah right um so questioning justice making and a tragicomic commitment to hope yes <laughs> so w- would you want to just kind of go through and talk about what uh cornell west dr yeah. cornell west means by each of those yeah so the first one um this question asking is i think sort of so these are the three building blocks of liberal religion and so liberal religion meaning that it's sort of focused on shifting and growing and changing and adapting versus conservative religious traditions that are about sort of trying to align with the past and prevent prevent change. And I don't want to like pass judgment on that because um, like 
maintaining your traditions is can be a really powerful thing. Um, but that's sort of one of the like fundamental differences between um, conservative religion and liberal religion is like we're as Unitarians, part of our um, sort of theological lineage is this idea that revelation is ongoing, meaning like you can gather just as much about like the divine, say, from like going on a hike through the Adirondacks as you can from reading the Bible um, versus a conservative stance. And I'm obviously as a UU minister, we are part of liberal religion. So this is me like sort of extrapolating. Um, but a conservative religious stance would say that the only way to understand the divine is through maybe a more literal read on biblical texts and maybe that only designated clergy people are allowed to do that. Um, so that sort of distinguishes we're, we're in the like shifting and moving and adapting um, and trying to meet the world as it is kind of religious tradition. And there are all different kinds of um, religious denominations that are part of liberal religion, right? Like there are like sects of Judaism that are part of liberal religion. There are sects of Christianity. There are all different kinds of denominations. Um, and so what Cornell West is saying is that the three things that distinguish liberal religion are this questioning, um, the commitment to justice, and then the tragicomic hope. So the first one, the questioning part, I find really, I find the way that he talks about it really interesting and powerful um, because part of what he focus, focuses on um, is the sort of why behind the question asking um, because what he talks about is how this commitment to question asking is not like there's no cynicism here this is not like i want to play devil's advocate i want to prove you wrong like i just like arguing that's not the kind of questioning that he's talking about the yeah, kind of politics. questioning <laughs> yeah like that's not that's not what we're doing here right like no punditry totally, yeah no zero <laughs> <laughs> like just just hard no on that one. Mm -hmm. So the kinds of question asking that he's talking about is question asking that's more that's this reflective like what are like what we just did talking about money like what are the power dynamics that are at, at play here? Are are we really in moral alignment here? Are we really like does this like truthfully have integrity whatever sort of going on so it's this question asking that's trying to draw closer to um like our moral compass not making jabs for entertainment's sake right so it's mm -hmm. this like forever trying wondering about the power dynamics at play and how we can um I think the phrase he uses has have moral have greater moral consistency. So like, are we really living out our morals? So it's that kind of question asking this kind of curiosity. Um, so and again, not the like, I'm just going to ask questions to try and prove you wrong. Like that's a totally different vibe, which is not what he's talking about. Um, so that's the first one is question asking, mm -hmm. but this kind of earnest question question asking. And then the second one is justice making. 
Um, and so that's then like, if you're asking these questions and you're sort of being informed and trying to live in line with your moral integrity, you that has to inform your behavior, right? Like that has to shift how you operate in the world on like a practical interpersonal level. Um, and so that's the second piece is justice making about how are you, how are you treating other people? Um, how do you respond to evil? Um, do you care about other people's suffering? And then what do you do about it? Um, so that's the second part. And then the third part is the sort of like water in the desert factor, um, which is the tragic comic commitment to hope. Um, because what he says is what Cornell West says is these first two, this questioning and justice making that alone, like that's not a sustainable pairing. Um, because justice making is a project that expands beyond any of our individual lives and beyond our own lifetimes. And so to be able to sustain that in a real way and not be overtaken by despair that makes us succumb to the powers that be, right? In order to resist that, we need this kind of gritty hope, um, which is honest hope. It's not like naive, like, oh, everything's perfect, right? Like, I feel so chipper and cheerful. Um, what he's talking about is, is like joy and um, the sort of hope that comes in, right? Celebrating what you can. Um, and I think that can be the hardest part for you use because we can be so heady and intellectual. <laughs> um, and because there's this kind of like leap of faith that you have to take that you're not the only person working for justice um, and that we are all so much more connected than, than we maybe want to realize. Um, so, cause there's this whole section in that sermon where um, I'm forgetting the woman's name now. There's an, a UU ethicist who talks about how um, like middle-class liberals, sort of political liberals have a really hard time with justice movements especially white people because we're like in in the system of white supremacy we're like used to being in charge right in like we were talking about with the gates foundation there's just this like well of course we should be the one deciding um and so part of the challenge of true justice work is learning to undo that um and it's this it's tricky because often when like white you use and white liberals see injustice, we have this like, well, we should fix it. Um, which if you're going it, it right, if there's still this thing where you're not shifting the power dynamic and you're not giving up your own power, then is it helping? Um, and then yeah. there, then there's this discouragement of like, but nobody wants my justice effort. Right. Um, and so it's really complicated. And so this kind of um, dynamic hope that isn't based on like, I can solve it, but is more this sort of um, freedom of spirit, which is way harder to pin down. Um, why it's so critical, because we can't, right, like if you succumb to despair, then like, the power systems as they are have succeeded, 
Right. They've convinced you that you have no power. Um, So like I remember in grad school, my a lot of my black church friends and classmates refer to this as the devil. Um, The sort of like the thing that steals your hope and convinces you that you can't actually do anything and there is no um, change possible which may or may not work for people, right? Like you use sort of having that personified idea of this problem. Um, but yeah, that's why that's why West is saying it's so important because you need that sustenance to keep you going through all the challenge um, and to keep you faithful to the task. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's a certain element of that nihilism and despair that is protective, right? right? It's the same kind of thing as um, punitive approaches to justice where, yeah. you know, a, a throwing away of someone is, is an ending of right. sorts. Yeah. Um, and uh, throwing up your hands nihilistically is an ending of a really hard process. Um, oh, interesting. I've never thought about and, it that way. Like you're opting yeah, out. Yeah, it's you know, it's sort of avoiding the really hard parts and saying, oh, well, like, not just saying, you know, it's, it's taking this reality of, wow, this is so hard. This is so painful. Yeah. This is so complicated. And this requires me to give up control and be in true relationship and solidarity with people. Right. And maybe I've never been in control anyways, which is also really hard Right. In a, in a social system that says, like, you're the top of the food chain, you get to call all the shots. That's right. like, that's a hard, that's a hard shift to make. So it's taking all of that tangled, gnarled yeah. mess and replacing it with, it's impossible, I give up. Yeah, I'm done. I'm out. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, like paradoxically you need that joy to stay in the hardest parts yeah because without it that nuance is too overwhelming right and there are times and this is normal when you can't hold that joy yourself yeah and that is when community comes in because other people can hold it for you what like when you have to put it down. And we just... talked about this in the fall, how hope is like yeah. a group effort, yeah. right? Which is why community is so important because no single person like can hold the cosmos at once, right? Like we sort of, right. we do all of these things together um, so that joy is always at play even while maybe you personally can't hold it. Um, which is again where it's a leap of yeah. faith, right? To to believe in our interconnectedness and to believe that there like joy is still possible, even if it's not happening in you personally. Um, so, And I think, a, I mean, a really powerful wellspring of that joy for me lately has been not just thinking about like, so last time we talked about some dreams that made us feel hopeful. Yeah. Um, you know, what we were dreaming of and imagining. Um, and it feels really joyful to see that dream in other people who are sitting yeah. next to you. So, um, like, a huge antidote to that paralyzing despair is seeing, like, 
that really beautiful possibility reflected in someone else's words or deeds or art. Right. Um, And saying, this isn't just me, you know, intellectual, like this isn't just a solo intellectual act or, you know, musing like this is not just me being, you know, totally out here. You're not thinking about these wild things. Like this, dream is feasible to other people. Right. And that shared vision is self-fulfilling. I mean, you have to have that. Yeah. Um, and so enlivening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have to say the most emotional I've gotten about this was from a piece of art. Um, there was a organization that put together um a video that was set in the future um and it was like uh it so it was set as a informational video about the years like 2021 through 2025 or whatever um so it was like set in like the future that we're hoping to get to yeah um and talking about like as if it had already happened, yep. the path to get there. Yeah. Um, and how things were were different. Um, and it was so much more tangible. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that liberation um, that's than it amazing. ever had been. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's what, I mean, I have never really been an art person. Yeah. But because that is so much of where our imagination. Yeah collectively you know our social imagination has been outsourced to artists and so (laughs) like having that you know come back and reawaken our imaginations by reflecting that tangible possibility is just like it bowled me over like I was crying like a baby yeah (laughs) but it's just like it's so funny hope because (laughs) you know this is we actually I I don't even remember how many weeks ago it was now because what is time? Um, yeah. But we as a congregation have been um, working with a consultant from the UUA to help us figure out how to sort of um, right size our justice program in our congregation to figure out like what do we value most together, right? We've talked about this before and like what what feels like the right kind of engagement and what feels like it's sort of overly political in a way that's not in line with who we are collectively as a congregation. Um, And the exercise, one of the exercises that um, her name's Erica Barron and she's a, she's another UU minister and she works for the region. Um, What she had us do was think five years in the future and we have exactly the, the most effective justice program we could possibly imagine and describing it. Um, Ooh, as yes, a sort of I love exercise. this exercise. Yeah, as an exercise that sort of gets you out of um, the headspace of being focused on all your limitations and instead sort yes. of jumping to, let's just assume that we collectively overcame those hurdles and did exactly what we imagined. Then like sort of as this like magnet to pull yourselves towards that reality instead of the push of like well here we are now and 
there are all these things in our way and how will we get anywhere? Um, so that's funny that you brought that up because we, we literally did that a couple weeks ago as a congregation. Okay. Can I say how much I love that we're taking back where do you see yourself in five years from corporate America? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's ours now. It's not theirs anymore. It belongs to church. <laughs> where do you see yourself in five years oh is now gosh. a revolutionary activist credo and oh not gosh, a trait so interview question. <laughs> oh, and it's so yes. different. It's so different. Because it's not like, it? yeah, yeah. it's not where do you see yourself in five years? It's right. It's not your investment portfolio. Where could you be? Right. Yeah. Right. Like, what do you dream for if, five years If everything now? goes right. Yeah. <laughs> what's the best it could be? Yeah. Right. And that's a very different That's a question. very different question. Yeah. But it's ours now. No one's allowed to ask it in an interview anymore. <laughs> 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 Sorry. It's over. Oh, we've reclaimed it. Ah, oh, that felt good. Yeah. Um, well, is there, I think we I might like be we approaching. Just, yeah, we made it through all the, <laughs> I'm like, are there any other nuggets? We'll be, so we didn't really talk a lot about the free pulpit, but we talked about it so much. Uh, yeah. Like, do last we Last month to? that I think, yeah, I would just say that I love the concept of freedom being, um, about the fullness of being in relationship yeah. instead of the isolationist individualist version of freedom. Well, and I think that's kind of like everything that we've been talking about is freedom. Exactly. Right. Is this so, like radical yes. hospitality is freedom and like solidarity investing. Is that what you called it? Like that's freedom. It's it, there are all these things that help us not be like a math number. Right. That's like your mm-hmm. some val- your total value is I don't know your income or I don't know. It's a, it's so much more dyna- dynamic and so much more human um, and like equalizing. So. Okay. So we took back freedom. We've taken back uh, freedom. We and took back where do you plan. see yourself in five years? Is there anything else we want to just like <laughs> snatch back <laughs> before we sign off? <laughs> I feel like there were other things, but now I can't remember. Until next time. Yes. How about the concept of like a wellness workshop instead of like giving any meaningful stress relief like or systemic change? Yeah. How about from now on, like any time that you're invited to go by a harm causing institution to some sort of like wellness workshop, you take the time off to think about how to organize against the fundamental (laughs) roots of the problem. (laughs) How about that's like what that's code for now? You're not into <laughs> symbolic band-aids? Um, the thing is, I like I love deep breathing as much as the next person, but like it doesn't replace like unions. So thank yeah. you. But does not does not replace healthcare. Yeah. So um and back like, to the vaccine access does not replace vaccine yes. access. Right. Nope. Yep. Um so, I mean, between now and the next time we record, we can just, like, think of more things. We can just work on that. <laughs> re. <laughs> okay. Great. All right. Goodbye. That was our sign off. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information about what's happening at UUCSW or for ways to get involved, visit us online at uucsw.org. All are welcome. Welcome.